Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. Experts on Expert. I'm Dak Shepard, and I'm joined by the Duchess of Duluth. Hello there. Oh. I know. Something you, happened to my voice. <laughs> did you get a little... Do you have a little... <clears throat> Hello there. Oh, it got worse. I huh. know. Something's wrong. You can't find the gear. You're like putting it into different gears. And then letting the clutch out. Still nothing. Hello there. Oh, my God. Perfect. Very strong. Very, very in command. <laughs> Uh, today, we're going to talk to Paul Feig. He is one of our favorite directors. He's also a writer and a producer. And probably just most importantly for us selfishly, he was at the Fable dinner party. That's right. I maybe went too far. Maybe I didn't. We're well, let's f- see. Paul weighs in. He is an objective outsider. He's not embroiled in uh, all the interpersonal workings of this show. So um, you probably, well, I know. I'm going to say I know you saw Bridesmaids. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening to this, you saw Bridesmaids. You loved it. He directed it. He also directed The Heat. Spy, A Simple Favor, The Office, tons of The Office, created Freaks and Geeks. He's an incredible man. He's a renaissance man. People might not know that Paul is always, literally always, dressed in a suit. Oh, yeah. He was dressed in a suit for this interview via Zoom. I think he sleeps in a suit, if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's it's such a cute um, and fun. uh, Playful. Very playful way to be. It is. I like it. He's, He's in pretend. Yeah. I love it. It's nice. Okay, so he has a show that he produces that's on uh, Fox at 9.30 on Thursdays called Welcome to Flatch. He also has a different new show out now on HBO Max called Minx, and it's really chalked full of penises, Mm, which we talk about. Yeah. It's great. What could be better? Please enjoy Paul Feig. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team, and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by WobbyWob on Squarespace. Simply design your products, and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. We are supported by Celebrity Cruises. On most vacations, you pick a place to go. You eat the same food over and over and you lie on the same beach. But with Celebrity Cruises, you can explore a new destination every day across Europe, the Caribbean, or Alaska. You can have it all. An absolutely incredible ship with delicious restaurants, nonstop entertainment, and the best rooms at sea. And now you can book with Celebrity's semi-annual sale. To book, go to Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to select sailings. Savings amount varies by destination. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships, registry, Malta, and Ecuador. He's an All suited up. 
Can you hear us? Can you see us? I can, Dax. Wait, I got to move this stack so I'm not looking at my face over yours. There we go. There, I'll put you right in the middle. There it is. You can hear me? Not only can I hear you, I feel like you're on WKBR <laughs> Cincinnati. Hey, everybody. Hey, it's really good to talk to you today. <laughs> I was actually at an event for my gin last night. We did a launch of it here in London. I was just yelling all night over a DJ. So I'm a little Brenda Vaccaro right now. And for any of you young people, in the audience, you'll have no idea who that is. Dax, you might not even know who that is. I don't, and I'm really bummed because I like to think I'm an older soul, but tell us who that is. She was an actress who used to do these ads all the time, and uh, was like, hi, I'm Brenda Vaccaro, but it sounds like she smoked a thousand packs of cigarettes every day. Occasionally, I'll get a little too revved up at an event as well. In fact, last night, I was at a basketball game, and I was starting to lose my voice by the end of the night. You know what? I have a little bit, right? A little horse? This is all too simulation-y, but the point is, <laughs> I often love how it sounds. Like, I think, oh, I would have had such a dynamic career if I had a little bit more gravel. <laughs> we need to start smoking. That's what it is, Dax. <laughs> Well, I'll be returning to smoking. Were you ever a smoker? No, I actually tried very hard to be a smoker when I was in my 20s, but I think I have a nicotine allergy because what would happen, I would smoke like a couple of cigarettes. I'd be so cool and like, this is great. But an hour later, all of a sudden be like, oh my God, nauseous, like I was going to die. That's everyone's experience. You just push through it. <laughs> everyone's first few cigarettes and then you have them in a driveway, this and that, and you're younger. And then once you get to about 10 a day, that passes. That's in the rear view mirror. And there's virtually no downside until your 70s. I'd love to give it 10. That's good. It's like the blowfish. What's that thing? Like they cut it once and you die. You cut it twice, you die. But if you cut it three times, you live. Who are the people who went like, okay, let's stick with it. You know, <laughs> these two guys died. Yeah, that reminds me of some famous cat study where they were seeing how far a cat could survive, like how many floors it could fall. I oh, promise God. you this is real. And I learned it in some college class and they're fine at a first story window, second story, oh, they're good. Third, I think it gets dicey. Four, five, and six, they die. Then okay. they incredibly found out, like, seven and above, they have time to relax. Oh. And then they can actually survive it. And again, to really? your point... Who went through floors four, five, and six and thought, fuck it, let's keep pushing. There might be a discovery here. <laughs> and I hope the cats got to test that on the researchers and see how far they could fall. I think it would be fun for the listeners to get updated on how we have come to know you personally. Monica and I were at an extraordinary dinner party. And of course, in the name of anonymity, we've not outed anyone for being at That's that right. party. That's right. We talked about the party. Yes. But we have not talked about the humans there. Just say it was very cool. It was very cool. There were cool people there. I felt flattered to be a part of it. My ego was on fire. My status felt elevated. <laughs> We've had a lot of debriefing about that. As you'll probably attest, I came out swinging. You did. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I loved every second of it. So yeah, Monica and I left and we've talked about it a lot and it was like, it was so fun for all of us. And then I left kind of self-conscious, like I swung for the fences. I bet I was obnoxious. She's like, yeah, you were rough. And I think it worked. So it's kind of yeah, nice to have an outside party vote. And by the <laughs> way, you wouldn't hurt my feelings. I've dealt with the shame already. No, you're super fun. I mean, that's what that party was. Sorry, listeners, to make it such a mystery party, but it was a fun group. But I got to sip by you, Paul, and it was such a delight. Back at you, my friend. I like it. It works as a mystery because slowly we'll interview everyone that was there. Mm. But I can tell you the exact moment that was replaying in my head on the cab ride home was when I took the host's book. I think that person is known because he okay. invited us to yeah, this okay. party on air. Oh, okay, great. 
So, Stanley Tucci. Yeah. There we go. I picked up the host, Stanley Tucci's book, and I began reading in a very thick, offensive Italian accent. Sure. It's just, just reading his own words. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in England. You're still there, right? Yeah, I'm in London. I think it suits you so well. Can you just tell us what it's been like for you to move there from California by way of Michigan? What's it been like there? I mean, it's nice. My wife and I, we met 32 years ago now, and the first thing we bonded over was our love of London. My mom's side of the family is all British, so I feel it's in my genes anyway. But I don't know, I just love kind of the way they do things here. I love the style for older men. I'm a big Savile Row, like bespoke tailoring guy. And you can walk around here in suits and you're not the weirdo like you are in L.A., which all I ever hear in L.A. is like, hey, why y'all dressed up? It's like, well, because I'm an adult. I'm almost 60 years old. I'm sorry I'm not wearing, you know, shorts and a T-shirt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess that's one of the ways I think it suits you quite well. What did I say? Oh, my God. Oh, there's a there pun we in go. there. Really well good. done. Thank you. All right, that's it. I'm not going to top that. <laughs> when I look at you, the vibe you embody is David Byrne. Do you like that compliment? Oh, my God. That's the biggest compliment I could ever have. I mean, the ultimate renaissance man. Right. And we never got to talk about him. We did have a great sidebar about drumming, which I hope to revisit. But yes. you must have loved the Talking Heads. Huge, yeah. I always loved their music, but when Stop Making Sense came out, that just blew my mind. To this day, if I'm depressed or anything, I put that on full blast, you know, watch it. And it's so amazing. It's incredible. And we talked about this because at this dinner, we both realized that we were from Michigan and you're from Mount Clemens. And for people mm -hmm. who like the Michigan map, because it's a mitten, Paul is from the lower part of the thumb. There you go. It made me wonder, did you guys ever go up to Caseville when you were younger for some camping? Not Caseville, but I always had friends. We'd always go up north. I didn't know where up north was. I just knew it was somewhere. It was always like so remote. We weren't even in towns I can tell you the name of. It'd just be out in the middle of the woods trying to get killed. Literally like, hey, I got a dirt bike. Okay, through trees and bam. The next thing I wake up like, oh my God, I ran into a tree. You know, Or it's always like, hey, let's blow a bunch of stuff up. And you're like, okay, cool. You never know if you're going to run into a militia or something like that. That is so mixed messages. I would never guess that about you. Not saying I enjoyed it. <laughs> Yeah, I think the really fun aspect is like, those are all the things I love. Yes. I love to blow things up and I ride motorcycles. <laughs> so it's so funny that we came from the same place. And then for me, that was a real natural fit. And for me, I was like, I got to get out of here. Yes. I love everybody there, but I just, it's not my scene. I mean, concrete and buildings, that's my jam. Yeah, because I think the first thing I asked you was like, do you just long for the lakes like I do in the summer? Like, no. <laughs> not at all. This means mosquitoes <laughs> and outhouses, which mm. to me is like sitting over the gaping mouth of hell. So I don't. <laughs> Always try to stay away from those. You must have loved the Slumdog Millionaire scene. Oh, wow, yeah. Yo, yo, geez, that is such a trigger for me. All my worst <laughs> recurring nightmares are about the worst bathroom in the world. It's usually yeah. a public bathroom. I don't have shoes on, and I've got to walk over to a stall, and I'm walking through shit. And it's just like, oh, God. And it happens constantly. Like in Train Spotting, they had that. But if you read the book Train Spotting, the scene that they kind of made fun where he shits out the pill and then dives into the toilet, that scene is written so horrendously <laughs> gross in the book. They had the perfect film stock to make that scene sing, right? It was like yeah. so saturated and colorful that you were kind of like, oh, it's a little cartoony, I hope. Exactly. Yeah, it didn't feel too real. <laughs> yeah, because nobody wants to watch the way it was written yeah. because it's a horror show. <laughs> oh, 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 my God. It's so funny you'd say that because Tuesday night, 
Kristen had terrible gas. Oh. And I had terrible gas. And she was saying, like, we're ruining this bedroom permanently. We had doors wide open. It was freezing the whole night. What did you guys eat? She was dancing with a new protein shake. Oh. And then I'm me. But anyways, the result of which is I had this horrific dream, like you're saying, where for two and a half hours, I had to go to the bathroom. And I was on a vacation, and I just couldn't get to a clean. And it went on for two hours. And you're right. Oh, I've God. had dreams where I'm getting stabbed that were more pleasurable than that. Yes, yes, exactly. Give me anything other than fecal matter. That's all. Yes. When you left Wayne State and then you went to USC, what did you major in at USC? Film TV production. So I got in the film school. But you were kind of harboring more acting fantasies. Or were you just doing that because it was available? My goal in life was to be an actor. I wanted to be a stand-up too, but stand-up to me was always going to be the road to being an actor. And when I was at Wayne State for the first two years, I tried to get into the theater department, but then that seemed too heady, you know, and so I got into mass media. You know, in Detroit, that's what you kind of get. You can't go to film school. And and um, just took any creative classes I could, film studies class, one for film writing, which was kind of hilarious. What was hilarious about it? Just because none of us knew what we were doing. When the teacher, bless her, she kind of the one that motivated me. So I wrote this thing and she's like, you're so talented. You should be in Hollywood. You're such a great screenwriter. Oh my God, you know. But then there's some girl in the class who was like, I have an idea for a screenplay. Once when I was driving in the car, my boyfriend put a stick of gum in his mouth and pulled the gum out of the wrapper and accidentally threw the gum out the window and not the wrapper. And she goes, I just want to write a movie about that. So those are the kind of ideas oh, wow. we're going around. Wow, wow, wow. So I came up with some ridiculous thing, and she's like, you're so talented. So flash forward, I go to USC, and I get my first class where we had to write a script that was going to be the short film we were going to shoot in the next semester. So I write this thing. I think I'm like a genius. It's like two neighbors in their yards, and one like throws something over the fence, and they start a war, and basically they end up blowing each other up, whatever. I was like, this is such a commentary on life. Why can't we get along? I turn this thing in. The teacher thinks, it's so terrible that people say, like, she's actually thinking of recommending that you be thrown out of the school. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. my God. That's how bad it was. But then here's the save. Here's how I did it. Everybody had to write, like, a critique of your thing, and everything was scathing. Yeah, everyone's competing against each other. Yeah, and they're all cool, and they all love Godard. I'm trying to make, you know, Groucho Marx movies. So what I did is I took all those bad reviews, and you know how on movie posters they used to do, like, this movie dot, dot, dot is dot, dot, dot great, and you knew they just pieced it together from something that wasn't <laughs> Great. So I did that. I took all these several views and wrote rave reviews with all the dot, dot, dots and gave them back to the teacher. And she thought that was so clever that I ended up writing my actual short film that I shot. And she liked it so much that she used it in future years to show an example of a good script. So what a I close correction, that. like a phoenix from the ashes. My friend. <laughs> but what do you attribute the growth to? Was it that you actually heard the criticism or that you just were so ashamed and humiliated that you had to then dive deep and figure out what you actually knew how to write about. Yeah, I realized how I had coasted in Detroit at Wayne State. So it's kind of like, oh, wait, no, I'm in the big leagues here at USC Film School, which people fight to get into. I just lucked into it because especially back then, like the film schools have gotten much bigger now. That was like tiny and nobody could get in. I was a tour guide at Universal Studios for the summer before and found out about USC. I wanted to apply and they're like, it's really hard. But then that year, apparently USC said, we've got too many showbiz kids in here. We got to get people from the outside. Too nepotism -y. Yeah, exactly. So through Detroit, I came in and I kind of got right in. So I was like, that was easy. And it turned out I had the one window that never existed. I don't want to slow the progression of this, but I just, I do feel obligated to defend the gal from Detroit because <laughs> what you don't know is that her title was Wrigley's Folly. <laughs> 
exactly. Which is such a good title. Like, she got the title, and then she mm -hmm. tried to go backwards from there, and we can excuse that. Well, can we excuse it? I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> I'd see Wrigley's Folly. That sounds really... We're making that movie. That's all I'm going to say. We're making that movie. So, the whole time you were going to USC, you were writing, and then you're also a tour guide at Universal. When you were doing that, did they already have... Because when I shot at Universal for six years, the mystery van would drive around from Scooby-Doo. Right. Was that on the scene when you were doing it? No, it was 81 because I'm old. It was the early days. The tour had been going, but they were just trying to step it up. So he had just put in the special effects house. So the tour would go halfway, then they would drop people off and you'd go into this thing and they would show you how special effects were done. So it was like the early version of some of the things they do now. But all we had roaming around were these two poor guys. It was the hottest summer on record. There was a Phantom of the Opera and a Frankenstein oh. who had to walk around. But their <laughs> makeup was just a rubber full head thing they would work 15 minute shifts and then get 45 minutes off because they would come back like they were going to die oh, oh my god. god it was the worst gig in the world it's uniquely humiliating that whole oh. genre of acting do you know craig t nelson at all i know who he is i've never met him he has this incredible story before he was a working actor where he was the planner's <laughs> peanuts guy and he had to wear this huge <laughs> thing where he saw out of the mouth of the peanut and kids for whatever reason love to attack this thing like every time they deploy him to a store or something to promote, he'd get attacked. People are mean. You know, I was a Ronald McDonald in Toledo, Ohio for a no! second. Yes. What? That's incredible. Yeah, we need more info. I was in a theater company. It was right out of high school. And the guy who ran it was this guy named Tom Shaker, who was the Ronald McDonald for Detroit. And he was very famous because he was once coming in in a helicopter for the opening of a new McDonald's. The helicopter hit power lines oh. and crashed. Oh, my God. Out of the wreckage, Tom pries <laughs> the door open, straightens his wig, and goes, hey, kids, I'm fine. Because <laughs> he knew he might have traumatized a whole generation of children. Oh hey, kids, God. I'm all fueled up on hamburgers. I made it out of there without a scratch. Wow. So because of that, he became this rock star, and he wanted to franchise his Ronald McDonaldness, His unique brand of Ronald McDonaldness. <laughs> so they offered him his own franchise in Toledo, Ohio over the border. So he said to me, because I was performing, he thought I was funny, and I did, you know, clowning and all that stuff. He said, will you be Ronald McDonald for there? And I was like, oh, okay, sure, that sounds cool. He said, first you got to go to Toledo and audition, show them what you can do. So I get there, they put me in this thing in the giant shoes. Right before I go in, he goes, oh, by the way, I told them you've been doing this for a year. And go! And he pushes me in. <laughs> have you ever tried to walk in giant clown shoes? Oh, my God. I have not. Is it like walking in snow skis? I would imagine. You can't judge the front of your foot and they had like rubber soles. So literally I'm coming on a carpet every step it's catching the front. So I'm like, doo -doo -doo. But that's great. Well that's the thing. I come yeah. piling in the room they're like what? And I'm like ha ha hey Ronald don't know how to walk or whatever. Get to the table. I got gloves on. I know how to juggle. So he's like and you'll juggle. He gives me the lightest balls like wiffle balls. Uh, I go to juggle them. Immediately I can't do it. So they don't hit the table. Rolling down the table and then in a panic I'm like, I'm just gonna heckle the guys. So I go around the table like, hey, there's one kind of heavy set guy and I like pinch oh. his cheek like he's a big baby. Like, aren't you cute? Ha ha ha. And like a whirlwind, I'm like, all right, well, thanks everybody. And I get out of there. 
my God. And I was just like, there's no way they're going to hire me. But Tom oh. comes out, he goes, congrats, you got the gig. Holy shit. Oh, that's hilarious. My God, you know, us actors, oh. I mean, the situations we find ourselves in, they're acid dreams. You wake up in that <laughs> outfit, you've got no training, you're falling, you're juggling, you suck, you're insulting a guy. Yeah. All that's happening so quick, you're scrambling to stay above water. And then you get in your car, and then you just really go like, what the fuck just happened back there? Oh, God, totally. What Craig T. Nelson was saying is true. Like, I would go to these events, and kids just wanted to beat the shit out of Ronald. <laughs> you had to have a bodyguard with you who was kind of ineffective. <laughs> Isn't that what the Hamburglar was? No, it's just like a person who was with you. <laughs> okay, okay. You would start a line to shake Ronald's hand. So they bring him down the line. You were supposed to reach out, and as you're shaking their hand, you're supposed to pull them past you, and then the bodyguard's supposed to then pull them away. But I did this one event. They gave me candy to put in my pocket to hand out to kids. And some kid, like, hit my pocket. And he goes, like, he's got candy. And they all jumped and, like, <laughs> tore the pocket off. They tore the pants. And we were just, like, fleeing back to the car like the zombies that were running after us. The travails of Ronald McDonald. They don't even have that anymore, do they? We got the internet now. I can't believe they got rid of that, but who knows? Well, if they didn't and I see one, I'm going to fucking hug the dude and I'm going to put, like, a thousand bucks in his candy sack. Yeah. Do it. So... <laughs> I was shocked to see how many TV shows you had been on throughout your early time in L.A. Facts of Life, Roseanne, Sabrina, wow. Ellen. Mm -hmm. Okay, when all that's happening, are you still setting some sights on writing, directing, filmmaking? Yeah, well, my goal was to write, direct, and star in my own movies. That was the excuse I used to go to film school. It's like, oh, I want to know more as an actor, but I also want to be able to do it for myself. Because I was a regular on five TV series. Four of them, total bombs. Finally, the fifth one, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I finally have a regular gig. They write me out after the first season. Oh, no. <laughs> but oh, what no. I would do is I would always cozy up with the writers and the directors, and I would always write an episode of whatever show I was on just as a sample, and they would like it, and then the show would get canceled, so they wouldn't do it. But I always sided with, the behind-the-camera team, I have to say. Heavyweights is a pivoting moment. Or did you already know Judd prior to that? Oh, I knew Judd forever. We were stand-ups together. We used to hang out with, you know, Steve Higgins, who runs Saturday Night Live now under Lorne. He and then Dave Higgins, who used to be on The Ellen Show, and Dave Gruber-Allen, who was Mr. Rosso on Freaks and Geeks, they had a comedy troupe called Don't Quit Your Day Job. And they used to perform at a place called the Variety Arts Center, which is downtown L.A., which is where I was a regular, too. And one night they were like, hey, you should come to our house. We have this house called The Ranch. It's in the back of the valley. And we hang out every night after our gig. And they basically play poker all night and drink coffee and they smoke cigarettes and we just tell jokes all night. That is a uh, dream. I mean, that was like four years of my life just doing that every single night. You always had to see the sun come up before you could leave. But Judd was one of the people who would come in and out of there. We became friends over something very mean because pre-internet, we used to pass around these videotapes, you know, like of the farting minister and all that kind of stuff. There were these famous videotapes that go around. But somebody had gotten their hands on this videotape that this woman had made who was a quote-unquote stand-up comedian and she self-taped herself around L.A. doing comedy bits on the beach and stuff, and they put a laugh track in that would just go, ah, oh, that's great. It is the same laugh track, every joke. And then she would have interludes in between of, like, dancing and this guy beatboxing, like, oh, oh, oh. oh wow. Everybody was really sad watching it, except for Judd and I. We thought it was hilarious. And they're like, that's so mean. Clearly something's wrong with her. But she sent the tape out, so can't we laugh at it? She sent it out. That was when Judd and I realized, oh, we have the same sense of humor. But also, you're juggling two principles, to be honest. Honest. Like, sure, you don't want to laugh at anyone and hurt their feelings. And also, you don't want to be dishonest. Like, I'm not going to lie and act like I have a different reaction to this than I have. Yeah. It's very complicated. 
Oh, totally. And it was just so absurd that you have to really force yourself to not laugh. If it was clearly somebody who was nuts, then yeah, no. But she just seemed like somebody who was, thought she was hilarious. Right, so was right, like, okay, right. go ahead. But because of that, Judd and I became friends and we've just stayed in contact forever. Okay, great. So I don't know why I feel like Heavyweights was something, but immediately after, you create Freaks and Geeks, and then you have two years, well, 99 to 2000, you make 18 episodes. They only air 12. Yep. Everyone knows the fate of that show. It's become this huge cult classic. I want to talk about the kind of cognitive dissonance you must have been experiencing where you got nominated for Emmys for it, and they're not even going to show the remaining six episodes. You've had so many incredible ups and downs, and you've had so many pivots. The flexibility is very ever-present in your career, and the fortitude and the stick-withedness that just keep fucking moving forward. So I feel like this is one of the first really primary examples of that. It's weird. I mean, because honestly, we got nominated after we got canceled. My mom died like right mm. before we aired the episode that got us canceled. So I was kind of all over the place. But then we got nominated. That was obviously really cool. But then we lost to Malcolm in the Middle, which is a very funny show. But to me, it was kind of the antithesis of everything I was trying to do with our show. Then I went into like a really bad year when I couldn't get anything sold. But then those six that they didn't air, they burned off on like a couple of Saturday nights. But I realized, oh, that actually makes us eligible for an Emmy. So I just submitted us for another Emmy and I got nominated a year and a half after we've been canceled. So it was kind of crazy. And yet I still lost again to Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little more complicated than I just want to make something different. That's one aspect. But also your cancellation is also a result of its lack of broad appeal, which this show also represents. Yeah. It's compounded a bit. Well, it's that weird thing because we got the most amazing reviews ever. So you had that, and I feel like today we would have gotten another season. It's a niche market now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we got canceled by having 7 million viewers every week, which today would make you a hit. Then it made you the lowest rated show on NBC. Yeah, today that would be the highest rated show. I don't think anyone's getting more than seven live. Okay, so after that, you have a rough year. I'm sure it takes you a while to get back engaged and on fire or whatever happens, but you go, okay, so my TV show didn't work. I'm going to write and direct this movie. Yeah. And you do. I Am David, 2003. Yes. And how did that fare? Well, it was interesting because I had gotten contacted by this company, what would become Walden Media. They had this whole thing. They wanted to take classic books and make them into modern movies, sort of like what they did with Clueless, you know. So they submitted a bunch of books to me. I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And then, weirdly, this book, I Am David, got sent to me. It used to be something that kids in Europe would study in school. You know, it's about a kid who grows up in a communist labor camp, and he's got to get across Europe to find his mother. Not a comedy, <laughs> clearly. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but I was in this place, my mom had died, and I was still dealing with that, and there was kind of this whole theme of finding your mother in it, but also I kind of related to it because a communist labor camp, sort of like, you know, high school, really, you just get stuck in a place with a bunch of other people, you don't want to be there. So I kind of felt I had like a take on it. And also I got caught in the trap that I tell every filmmaker not to get caught in, which is the award zone, which is like, ooh, and if I do this, I bet I'll win awards, yeah. which is the worst way to go into anything because you're not pleasing anybody at all. Yeah, but I earnestly wrote it and wanted to direct it. And we went off, I shot it in Bulgaria here's how you know this movie was going to bomb. We do this test screening out in Irvine, an audience in there. It goes through the roof. People love it. It gets really high scores. So we're just like on the lobby, like celebrating that we did it, we did it. And I look over and I see the audience leaving and there's these ushers at the door. They're handing everybody an envelope. 
And I go, what's that? And they said, well, when we told people what it was about, nobody wanted to come. So he said we would pay them $5 oh. if they would show up. Oh, my God. So you're like, oh, so if I pay the audience, I'll have a hit. Otherwise, no one's coming to this movie. Oh, my God. This is such a humbling business. So now you bounce back to TV. I don't know if you're like me, but it's like, it's really tempting at all times to try to anchor your identity in these different lanes you're pursuing, right? So it's like, I'm an actor, comedian. Um, now I'm a movie maker, I'm a filmmaker. And then I would imagine there's some hesitation to then go into TV. I was just happy to work, but at the same time, I all I want to do was movies. And I'm David bombed, and then I did another movie called Unaccompanied Minors, which is this movie for Warner Brothers, a Christmas movie, that bombed. Well, but between there, you did seven episodes of Arrested Development and 14 of The Office? Definitely Arrested Development was between those times. The Office kind of stretched over a lot of stuff because I was on there for six seasons. Okay, that makes sense. But I guess in that gap where you're just back in TV, I don't know, are you surrendering the notion or do you, are you thinking like, okay, well, shit, now I'm here, no one's gonna give me a movie. Were you having those thoughts? Yeah, well, very much so. I was very honored to be working on one of the greatest shows, you know, a lot of these great shows, but I just wanted to do movies and I wanted to do my own movies. And I remember just kind of going, well, I guess I'm just gonna run down the clock. I'll make a nice living and I'll do this and I'm gonna be a director, but I'm just kind of working my way towards old age. It's not like you're highbrow and going, TV's below me. What you're doing as a director on a TV show is you're servicing the showrunner. The showrunner's the boss, yeah. it's their vision. Yeah. So it's not really your vision, you're more of a laborer in that world, whereas in the film world, you're much more the Oz. Yeah, you're the one calling the shots. And I was lucky since I had created Freaks and Geeks and, you know, co-ran that with Judd. I at least had some cachet with these showrunners, so they would give me more latitude, but it's not mine. Was it weird for you? Because there's this juxtaposition where you're a name, you're a get, but in your own head, you're not able to do the things that you want to do. If you want something so badly, you just keep pivoting to try to find the way to get to what you want or to get to a version of what you want. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, everything changes dynamically at Bridesmaids, but prior to that, you were doing Nurse Jackie, which I had no idea, which I fucking loved that show. That was one of my favorite things I've ever worked on. I mean, everybody was so nice, and Edie's unbelievable, but it was just fun. And I had a crazy thing, because I did two episodes in the first season, and then I wasn't around for the second season, but the third season, I came back, and through some reason and all these other directors fell out or something i directed like eight of the ten episodes which was really exciting because i didn't have time to prep they're bringing me photos i'm prepping that way and it just opened me up as a filmmaker to be like not so anal about everything i would love that because i fucking hate prep i'm not dennis villeneuve trust me i'm not like storyboarding everything i used to storyboard everything and then i get the set and i'd be completely inflexible when things would happen and so i couldn't change things up especially in tv and you're like well i'm fucked if i don't adapt or you're working with really funny people and somebody's got a great idea and you're like oh no we can't because i'll have to add a shot it's like no let it go like have a vision and then be ready to get rid of it stay tuned for more armchair expert if you dare we are supported by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Monica, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? I want to say I would write and read my New Year's resolution. Yeah, uh, I would too. That would yeah. be the same. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities. So you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. 
Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot DAX. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team, and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by WobbyWob on Squarespace. Simply design your products, and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Mm, ZipRecruiter. With St. Patty's Day around the corner, here's a random fun fact. The chances of finding a four-leaf clover are one in 10,000. <gasps> yeah, very limited edition. You'd have to be pretty lucky to find one. Almost as lucky as Kristen finding a parking spot. Mm. There's always one right at the front somehow. Fortunately, if you're hiring, you don't need luck to find top talent. You just need ZipRecruiter. And you can try it free right now at ZipRecruiter.com DAX. No rainbows or gimmicks. ZipRecruiter leads you to a pot of gold, a.k.a. top talent every time. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology starts showing you quality candidates immediately. You can also invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. If you're even just a bit curious about how ZipRecruiter can help you, today's your lucky day. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com DAX. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Once again, try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Tap the banner to learn more. So then Bridesmaids happens. Was it a fight to get that? No, it was crazy. Well, what happened was when I was doing Unaccompanied Minors at Warner Brothers, Judd called me up and said, hey, we're going to do a table read of Kristen's script because I just put Kristen in Unaccompanied Minors in a tiny role. Judd always did these table reads. And so I really loved it, but I had another movie that I was probably going to do at Warner Brothers and he wanted me to kind of shepherd it. I was like, I don't have time, but I gave a lot of notes and said, when they kind of generate a new script and it's coming around, let me know. But then it just disappeared for like three years. That long? Oh, yeah. Now that I think about the timeline, they weren't green lighting $30 million female driven comedies. No. Judd became the thing they were betting on. That's exactly it. So Judd's name made it able to happen. Also because Kristen had been so good and knocked up so that kind of made everybody want something for her too. But I was in New York doing a bunch of internet ads for Macy's. One of them starring Donald Trump. So yes, I directed Donald <laughs> oh, Trump. Wow. wow. Wait, we're not moving past that. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to keep this apolitical. I just more honestly, as someone who's directed other humans, 
I can kind of imagine what that experience might be like because I feel like I'm seeing someone who's masking great insecurity with like hyper decisiveness and masculinity and that's a tricky right. place to be as an actor. This was 2010, you know, so he was just kind of like a funny talk show guest if he didn't look back into some of the stuff he did politically. So he showed up and he was like a fan of The Office. I'd been told also, get him out fast. Like that's the best <laughs> way to keep him happy. So this is like a documentary style thing. So I said, all right, everybody, when he gets here, meet him at the door door with the cameras. Donald, we're ready to go. He's like, whoa, hold on. I got to get my makeup on and all that. So, okay, <laughs> but we're ready. Comes out, we do the take. He was actually pretty good with ad-libbing and all that stuff. And sure. It was, was kind of funny. And so we do a couple takes. I go, that's great. We got it. And he's like, oh my God, Paul, you're the greatest. See you later, everybody. I was like, wait, no, no. Donald, actually, so we got to reset because now we have to do the after part. So we got to reset up the whole booth. He's like, what? I was supposed to be out of here an hour ago. Oh, oh. boy. You've only been here for 45 minutes. Oh, my God. I don't quite know how to be the master of space and time and get you out of here before you showed up. And I got him out pretty quick. But I was kind of a wreck when he left because I was in such a panic. So he left, and I was just kind of like, oh, okay, we're done. And the ad guy was like, no, you got to shoot all the other stuff that he's not in. I was like, wait, what am I shooting? What? But, you know, it was fine. It was actually a really funny spot. Were you getting at all triggered, like, high school memories? Like, oh, God, here's the, the captain jock. of the football team. A little bit. Honestly, again, back then, he was on Letterman, and he was on Howard Stern. He was a goof. Yeah, a goofy blowhard. A billionaire that's, for some reason, doing online Macy's commercials. Yeah. Okay, so Bridesmaids <laughs> comes along. And you and I talked a bit about this at the dinner party, but as someone that had just been friends with Melissa at that point for... 12, 13 years, saw her working, but never seen her do her unbelievable once-in-a-lifetime comedic tornado. It was just this like, oh my God, finally, here she is. Yeah. I have to imagine that you being the first person to really put that on film, you must have been aware of it a bit. Well, yeah, she came in very late in the game for the auditioning. We'd audition a lot of people, all really great people, but we were like, we haven't quite found it yet. Right at the end, Kristen and Annie Mumolo go, oh, we should see Melissa McCarthy. She's our friend in the Groundlings. I was like, okay, cool. I'm not sure why we didn't see her earlier, but yes, please bring her in. And she <laughs> came in and she did it so different from the way everybody else did it that it took me like 15 seconds to kind of go, what's she doing? And then it's like, this is hilarious. <laughs> and then we just started playing around because I always do a lot of improv in these auditions. And she was coming up with all this stuff. It was really funny, but it was crazy stuff with a dolphin. And so we were just like, oh, my God. So she left. And the way she tells it, in the ride home, she was just like, oh, my God, I blew that. Why did I do all that stupid stuff? And we were just like, we got her. You know, so we're all high-fiving around there. So we started doing these improv session rehearsals with the cast. And it was really then when she started being so inventive with everybody else, she was coming up with these crazy things that we started putting in. I mean, all that stuff in the dinner scene about female fight club that came out of these improvs and we we're like holy shit so we're just like writing it down and the big thing we did is there was supposed to be a call center woman a build collector who keeps calling annie in the movie and annie keeps like hanging up on her and then after everything falls apart of the wedding she gets a call from the woman when she's watching castaway and the woman's like don't you hang up on me and she kind of reads her the riot act on how to change your life uh -huh. but we were kind of like that's cool but we've got this really great character why don't we make her be the one that does and so that's where that scene came from. Now here's an interesting chapter that pretty much continues on to this day. Now you go from somebody who's, again, trying to get things to now having some options, having some agency, getting to direct a bit the course you're on. I want to come to understand more than just on a surface level of like, almost without exception, the next one, two, three, four, five, six movies you make are female-driven, almost no need for any men. Which I love. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> thing. You've been applauded for it. But 
I'm mostly interested in like, what is it about the dynamic of working with women that you find preferable? It was a number of things. I was an only child. I grew up next to a family of eight kids. Six of them were girls. They were all my best friends. I was close with my mom. I had a lot of bullies in school. So all my friends were either girls or really nerdy dudes like myself. And then that combined with watching old movies with my mom where the male and female characters were really equals and then seeing the movies of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s where the comedies got so male-centric and the roles for the women were so terrible and then getting to know so many funny women when I was a stand-up and then going into acting, like knowing how funny they were and they go, oh, I'm in this movie and go see the movie and you're like, you're not funny. Like, they didn't yeah. let you be funny. They made you be mean to the guy, so you're yeah. the shitty girlfriend. And then the final thing is just, like, I just feel more in tune with those stories. As far as I'm concerned, I never need to do a movie that stars a dude, you know, because <laughs> I just, there's so many stories about women that I want to tell, and there's so many women I want to work with. And I just love it. You know, when we did the test screening for Bridesmaids, that dress shop scene when Maya Rudolph sinks down in the street, I've never heard an audience <laughs> of women laugh that loud. It was like a religious experience where you're like, wow, you want to tap into these things that they don't get to see all the time and find things that are relatable in that way. So what's interesting is like, I can't imagine you consciously did this, or maybe you did, but First was this kind of stereotype that, like, there wasn't going to be a female-driven comedy. It was going to compete with the male-driven ones. Right. And then it surpassed most of them. And the next movie's The Heat. Now it's a buddy cop movie with women. It's its own genre that's not supposed to work with females. Were you conscious of it, or were you just making what's interesting to you at that point? Because then Spy comes again. There shouldn't be a female spy. She shouldn't look like this. Another genre challenging thing with women were you conscious of it or is it just happening it's kind of just happening really i mean the heat was not the heat it was called the untitled female buddy cop comedy and that was actually on our swag like literally we couldn't oh, give oh, them the name until we almost came out and i got sent this script that katie dippled wrote i met katie because i directed an episode of parks and rec in the first season and she was one of the writers and i just thought it was the funniest script and i had a meeting with her and she was saying what her motivation was she loved buddy cop movies she's like how come the women always have to be on the back of the moped in a bikini and they get to have all the fun. And she was like, I want to do one where we flip it. And I was like, I love that because I was so excited that I was finally getting to make female fronted things, which I've been pitching throughout my career and could never get made because they say, well, they don't make money and all that bullshit. Then when I was in post-production on The Heat, Skyfall came out. But I, I'm a Bond fanatic and I always want to make a James Bond movie, but I know nobody's going to let me make a Bond movie. Right. So I was kind of like, oh, I want to make one, but I'll make a female one because I know Melissa and we can flip the genre and that was it and i have so many you know so many haters now because of ghostbusters who are like oh you social justice warriors like no guy i'm just telling you i know all these funny women i want to write yeah. projects for them i do think that audience is, is underrepresented so if that makes me a social justice warrior so be it but i'm just trying to entertain a section of the audience that doesn't normally get entertained and that yeah. to me is i hate to say called good business because i don't do it for that reason but if it makes people money i gotta keep making movies <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i would love to hear what your walkaway feelings are of the Ghostbusters experience, but you're trying every fucking genre and it's working. Like Bridesmaids makes 288, The Heat makes fucking 229, The Spy makes 235. So you're winning, 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 winning. So then it's like, okay, well, let's fucking try Ghostbusters. If yeah. ever there was like a beloved yeah. male genre-ish thing, first of all, I doubt you could explain it to me. I remember watching The Hubbub and I kept thinking, is there Hubbub or is there 10 people that the media is right. covering and making it seem like there's some kind of consensus. Like, this has happened to movies. Do you remember at Costner's height, 
all of a sudden people wanted him to fail, I think. And so he makes Waterworld, right? And, yep. Oh, and it's yeah. already rumored to be so over budget. Before you've ever heard anything about what the movie's about, you've heard it's a bomb. The knives come out, totally. Yes, yeah. it's, it can't recoup. So then it taints the well. And I remember I reluctantly saw it because I too thought, well, I mean, they shit the bed on this one. I was even young and I knew that. And I saw it, I was like, this movie is fucking awesome. It's Road yeah. Warrior on the water. What is the problem here? They kind of ruined that movie before it ever came out. It didn't have a shot. And I feel like similarly, Ghostbusters is that way. After some time away from it and some clarity, what do you think happened? Was it just like a flashpoint in our society? Yeah, I think it was a weird flashpoint. I walked into it just like kind of Lamb to the Slaughter because, you know, I'd been contacted first by Ivan. They had a script for the sequel. Friends of mine wrote it and stuff. I was just kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to step into that. Then Amy Pascal really sat me down. She was like, this great franchise is sitting there. Why won't anybody touch it? And so I went to this whole thing. Here's why we won't touch it. It's comedy gold. It's too good, right? Yeah, yeah. it's canon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I walked away from there going like, yeah, but it's a great idea. And so I thought, I don't want to compete with the other one with Bill and all the those guys. I know Bill didn't want to do one. Harold had just died. So yeah. I was like, what's the safest way to do this? Let's just reboot it. Start it again. We're just taking the idea and doing it in a new way. And then it was like, well, how would I do it? How do I not compete with those guys? I know. I work with all these funny women. Let's do a female Ghostbusters. It was as innocent as that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I put out this tweet when we closed the deal and everything, which I still regret. I'll sell it as an <laughs> NTF or something one of these days. Or <laughs> NFT or whatever the fuck. <laughs> it, was. it was like, I'm rebooting Ghostbusters. I'm going to do it with an all female female cast, that's who I'm going to call. Oh, I love ah. that. Yeah, there you go. Up to this point, I had this amazing relationship with the internet because of Freaks and Geeks and Prizeways yeah. and everything. I knew people got flamed and, and trolled, uh, but I never got it. So I was kind of like, oh, this will be fun. And the first day, just joy is coming in. I was like, oh my God, we're so happy. Everybody's like celebrating. So I go to bed like, oh my God, this is great. <laughs> Wake up the next morning and you pick up Twitter and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> then it just got vicious and it just never left. I saw the original Ghostbusters. I was just graduating from film school. So, you know, I was in my 20s. First showing, we were there. We loved it. Thought it was so hilarious. It just blew my mind that you could do a comedy that also had sci-fi and all that stuff in it. But I wasn't a kid running around my neighborhood playing Ghostbusters. It's not the seminal moment right. of your childhood. No, I was like, this is a great comedy that we should take that idea and do it again. And I had no idea that it meant so much to so many of these young guys. I don't blame anybody for getting mad about somebody remaking something that they liked because, yeah. you know, it's dangerous. I just thought it would be fun. No, I can see myself doing the exact same thing because the thing I got offered that I turned down that I couldn't believe I was turning down, but yet I knew better was Fletch. I got offered to play Fletch and I was like, I can't win. No one can win. How is it going to be done? Exactly. There has to be something completely upside down about it so that there's no comparison. So I could see going on this path. Now, here's one question I have. When you saw the fervor, the reaction, was there a debate either internally or even with others saying like, you know what, we should bail out of this. And then the counter being, well, then we're backing down to this kind of misogynistic thing. You know what? We had written the script by that point, and we were really happy with the script, and we knew who we wanted to cast and all that, so... You're like, we'll just win them over with a great movie. Yeah, because I felt the media was definitely amplifying them more than they needed to be amplified, even though there was a lot of them out there, but a lot, you know, 5,000 people compared yes. to millions and millions of people. So it's kind of like, no, it was just going to be too much fun, <laughs> you know? We were right, designing right. cool stuff. We were really having a great time. So, yeah, you know, 
you just kind of go like, it'll be great. I'm very proud of the movie. I'm glad yes. I made the movie. Yeah, yeah. I stand by it. People come up to me all the time with young boys going, like, it's his favorite movie. It's a very specific generation that was upset. Oh, yeah, yeah. Above and Below was so excited. I can't imagine you have regrets about it, nor was I implying you should. Just more like Men at the Gate with Roses three in a row, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're virtually doing the same thing you just did the three previous times. What the fuck just happened? I thought we were all in on this now. Yeah, that was the biggest thing for me is like, you guys know I made these other three movies. Like, look <laughs> at who's in those other movies. This is not right. like a new idea I had. He's like, oh, that's the Achilles of this whole thing? I know. It's interesting. It was just very silly, though. I mean, at the end of yeah. the day, it was me waking up as a man then in his 50s, I guess. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's all my bullies from high school. And yeah, that was yeah. the biggest thing of just like, I regressed to being like a teenager again. She's like, all those insecurities. Like, why is everybody being so mean to me? You're getting death threats. It's like, what's I'm happening? I'm just a nice boy who wants to make a fun movie. I want to make a movie about ghosts and <laughs> yeah. funny people yeah. that try to chase them. And, you know. <laughs> All right, then you do Simple Favor, which is a great hit, and Last Christmas, which is a hit. And then I want to talk about what's coming up next. And when we all had dinner, you were in the middle of making this. I also want to comment that, obviously, your style increases every time. Thank you. Cinematically, they're getting better and better. You start with some great relationship with comedians and knowing how to get performances, but then I've seen the filmmaking itself just keep growing and growing and growing, and you deserving the budgets you're given. Have you yourself felt this growing wisdom of the visual aspect of the medium? Well, yeah, because, you know, when you start out, you want to be visual, but especially with comedy, it's all about the performances. Like, you know, I can yeah. make the greatest looking comedy, but if the performances aren't great, my DP, who I love, John Schwartzman, a lot of times he's like, you got it, because to him, the camera move was perfect. I'm like, yes. yeah, John, yes. camera was great. I don't have it yet. Like, I got to <laughs> yeah. get 10 more of these. I'd rather have 10% less great, you know, angle or lighting if the performance is going to be great. Well, and then even like, uh, we're geeking out way too much about this monocle, down. But but I will say, like, <laughs> the people that I admire the most, like Scorsese famously, right, there's a fucked up shot in Casino where yeah. Sharon Stone's having her breakdown. There's a huge bobble in the camera, which you would never see in a Scorsese movie. And he had plenty of takes where there was no bobble. But it's great to see, like, at the end of the day, his priority was that as well. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, he's also, he doesn't care about continuity. And I'm kind of that way, too. It's like, it's so funny. You'll shoot and the people go like, oh, you can't use that take, can't do that take. He's like, uh-huh, okay, okay, trust me. Whatever take you hated is going to end up in the movie because it was really funny or that performance was great. The audience doesn't care. My defense as the actor is always like, if someone noticed my collar was up on the left and down on the right, I've failed miserably at this exactly. scene. Exactly. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by The Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. For a start, the exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender 110's legendary capability lets you go further and do more, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Its durability 
has been tested to the extreme. It can handle your equipment, too, as the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Explore with greater confidence with powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, an award-winning infotainment system, and innovative camera technologies. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Who wants to fuss with inserting a card into a reader? Or worse, into a skimmer where your card information can be stolen? I wouldn't be here without Apple Pay. You wouldn't? No, none of the things I'm wearing. You'd be my here, skincare, but we'd have a lawsuit against you. Perhaps I just I I use it 14 times a day, and if it's not an option on what I'm buying, I often don't buy it. Exact same. I'll fill a cart. I see they don't have Apple Pay. I'm out of there. I know. And remember how last year on Halloween I was gonna go as Apple Pay? Yes, I do remember. I had to scrap it last minute because I didn't plan ahead, but I still think it's a great costume. Yeah, earmark it for a later. I Halloween. will. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. We are supported by HelloFresh. You know, there are days when it's really hard to decide what to eat. You stare blankly into the fridge for what feels like hours with no success. And you end up hangry. Well, I've got a solution. HelloFresh, they deliver fresh ingredients and chef-curated recipes straight to your home. And they even take care of the meal planning. I love it because I always text Callie, what should I eat for dinner? Okay, you ask her a lot. Uh, yeah, because I get stressed and overwhelmed. And she doesn't know. And so HelloFresh is so great if I have it because then it's all there. I don't have to make any decisions. Well, what did you get into last night? Ooh, last night I had a, you know I love prosciutto. Mm-hmm. I Who had doesn't? A, that was so good. I had a prosciutto wrapped chicken and it had a truffle chive mashed potatoes and Ooh. a lemony broccoli. It was delicious. Oh, my goodness. Go to HelloFresh.com slash DaxFree and use the code DaxFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life. Available for a limited time at HelloFresh.com slash DaxFree with the code DaxFree. Okay, so your new movie is The School for Good and Evil, which is like a epic tentpole movie, Charlize Theron, Kerry Washington. Yeah. Is it the longest schedule you've ever had? It's turned into the longest schedule. Well, also COVID. Yeah, yeah, okay. totally. But even because of that, I mean, we ended up doing some additional photography. I don't want to say reshoots because it sounds yeah. bad. <laughs> it sounds like I didn't do it perfect the first time. Exactly. We just found we had our test screenings. People love the movie. There's just been a couple of things. They're like, I don't understand this. So I was like, oh, we need to explain that. But no, I'm really having so much fun on this movie and after doing Ghostbusters I so enjoyed doing big special effects but then you know Simple Favor and Last Christmas were very pared down obviously and I kind of was jonesing again to have an art department do all that stuff and so we're going for it but I'm really happy with how it's going yeah it would make sense that you would have an aesthetic like you're someone who actually is clearly visually stimulated the way you dress you care about those things you know there's levels and when you're on a 20 million dollar movie you get some really talented people that know how to work with nothing yeah and then when you give people the keys of the kingdom that are like would have been Picasso's in their day 
Yeah. That's an exciting thing to witness and be a part of, right? Oh, when you let them fly, I spent all this time in Budapest when doing Spy, and I fell in love with Art Nouveau with Andy Nicholson, my production designer. I was like, let's make this cool Art Nouveau. And then yeah. he takes it and runs with it, and you're like bringing stuff, and it's like, oh my God, it's so much fun. And you start feeling even guiltier, right? Because you're like, oh my God, now that I have access to all these great people, like they're making me look so good. <laughs> Oh, totally. Okay, and now you also have, it's so on brand. If ever you were going to do a spirit, of mm -hmm. course it would be gin. Yeah. Yes, sir. Very fancy. And Thank people you. may not know this about you, but you're a full-blown alcoholic, so. <laughs> I think a lot of people do know that about you. <laughs> How does one go from enjoying gin to deciding, I think I need my own gin? I've always loved adult grown-up life. When I was a kid, I, I didn't want to be a kid. I wanted to be an adult. I would watch Bewitched, and they would mix martinis when they come home. So I was like, I want to drink martinis. But I had a bad experience with gin as a kid because you went down to somebody's parents' bar, and you open it up, and like, oh, it smells like pine salt. Not a great thing to take a shot of. Totally. So I'm like, oh, well, I hate gin. So when I started drinking martinis, I was like, okay, I'll do vodka martinis. I was drinking those. But then as I got into studying cocktails, and this is 25, 30 years ago, I read a thing that said, like, a real martini. Martini is a gin martini. Oh, do you know that, Monica? Is that common knowledge? Yeah, it's common. If you go to a bar and you say, I want a martini, they should automatically give you a gin martini. They don't do oh, that, but they really? should. It's either, oh, I'll have a martini or I'll have a vodka martini. Yes. But I was like, oh, I don't like gin. I better teach myself how to like gin. So it was all like beef eaters and those things, really super junipery, piney kind of thing. But I kind of grew to like them. But at the same time, I was just doing all this research and like finding different types of gins and realizing, oh, they don't all have to be like that. And so over the years, everywhere we go, internationally, try gins and would find all these ones I really liked, but I never found the one that I loved. And so finally, five years ago, was able to link up with Minhas Distillery. How do you make gin? What is the base grain? In a nutshell, gin is basically vodka that you put a tea bag in. Ah, <laughs> interesting. It's ethanol, you know, which is the base of it. And then you have this thing called the basket. And the basket is where you put all the botanicals. And it ah. depends how you stack them, in what order you put them in. And then the ethanol goes into the still. The basket goes into the still, too. It percolates like a big teapot. Steeps. Steeps, and it runs through, and that's how you get the flavors. So that's why there can be an infinite number of gins in the world because it's mm. just the, the flavor profile. You know, we have 11 botanicals in mine. There's ones out there that have like 45 botanicals in them. But I don't like those kinds because I don't think you can taste kind of anything. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like the dashboard on the 90s Pontiacs. There was like 600 buttons. Like, what? Wait, what am I, flying a plane? Come yeah, on. these cars do this much stuff? So I got my own gin called Artingstall's Brilliant London Dry Gin. Which is your mom's maiden name? It was my mom's maiden name because I wanted it to sound like a gin that had been around for 150 years out of England. Yeah, pronounce it again. Artingstall. Does sound very British. Now, I had a brief affair with gin. It was in my phase where everyone was into swing dancing and... I would have a Tom Collins, which has gin, yeah, Tom Collins. Oh, yeah, yep, delicious. And then a gin and tonic I enjoyed a bit. I want to say, and this is such horseshit, I'm sure there's no science or molecular or anything to back this up, but I found it to be less of a hangover gin. Is that a kind of a rumor about gin? The clear spirits are your best bet for not getting a hangover. I've heard lately that tequila doesn't give you a hangover, which I beg to differ. Just the amount, it's not the spirit. But the clear spirits are a little friendlier, too, because they don't have the sugar that whiskey and that kind of thing has. Well, and also if you have like gout, you're not supposed, I mean, I hate to say right. this, but you're supposed to stay away from the brown liquor. Well, you should probably you not be drinking. 
Well, I'm not drinking at not all. Not you. No, no. I just mean if you have gout, <laughs> oh. maybe you just like take a break from drinking. How do you think you got gout, though? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Means you can't stop. <laughs> can you tell us what the botanicals are? I can tell you some of them. Okay. Some are secret. Proprietary. Some are secret. We got citrus peel in there. Mm. Uh, we got some uh, black pepper in there, which is Ooh. nice. It gives it a little spice on the back end. Cassia root. Bogan, like a director, loves his back end. <laughs> oh, yeah. Exactly. Amen to that. Doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't exist. I was just going to say <laughs> goodbye, oh, in your gin. <laughs> Hello, buyout. Exactly. It's lightly citrusy, a little floral, but with this kind of peppery backbite. And we've won a lot of awards. Our very first competition, we won Best Gin and Best in Show. The WSWA, but I wanted to ask, is Thank that you, real? Pal. What is the WSWA? It's big. It's the Worldwide Spirits Wholesalers Association. Of wow. course. Of course. There I want to try it. Were people drinking it at the party? We had it there, yeah, but now Stanley has gone over to a rival. Oh, he has his own. Yes, exactly. What a hilarious evolution. It used to be you'd be at one of these dinner parties with people that you <laughs> lost film roles to or people whose movie opened bigger than yours. And the notion now that many actors are sitting around and like their spirits are Competing tracking spirit you. spirit companies. <laughs> <So> wild. <laughs> Have a spirit throwdown, exactly. A bottle fight. All right, get away from me. It's the gin wars. I love it. It's very fun. <laughs> Just one peculiar thing you did, but not really, because as we discussed, you're a famous alcoholic. You would do this quarantine cocktail time. Yeah. Another thing that you and our host shared in common, because he famously made a cocktail on Instagram, and it became like all the rage. It so was. who started this, you or Stanley? I started because we were in the middle of shooting this TV show that's on now that I produce called Welcome to Flatch. And we were going to do the pilot. We got a day in and then I shut it down because COVID was, you know, going crazy and came back to L.A. and knew I was going to be sitting around for probably a couple of months and thought, I want to help out with the pandemic, but I don't know what to do. I'm not a medical professional, so maybe I'll just try to entertain people during it. So it's like every day without taking a break, I'll do a cocktail show where we'll raise money for charity, for COVID oh. charities, and then we'll kind of have fun. Right. And so it just started from that. And then I just started doing it every single day never took a day off. And, you know, we'd get a lot of viewers, but then Stanley made his one thing. He had more viewers for his muscly arms uh, making that Negroni than I had for like a hundred days straight of, of doing it. So don't take on Stanley. If he had dropped dead at that dinner party, now knowing what I know, you would be my primary suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Why, whatever do you mean, sir? Here, Stanley, drink this. I'm so happy for Stanley. First of all, who cooks a better meal oh than Stanley? Yeah. That food that night was, was like... incredible. He didn't have to try to wow everyone with his volume like I did. He walked the walk. I was talking the talk. It was a combo. The two of you together. <laughs> what a pairing. Perfect yin and yang. Exactly. <laughs> okay, and then the last thing I have to tell you about before we go is um, I haven't seen it yet, but I don't think I've received more messages on Instagram about any show ever than I have the Minx because I'm very out loud and public about how much I enjoy seeing penises in movies and TV shows. It's like my well, favorite go. thing. Did you watch Righteous Gemstones? Yeah. Excessive amount of penis. And then not only that, but the staging of the penis behind Danny playing on a thing, and it's right over his exactly. face. I love it. It's funny. They're so stupid, penis. Oh, no, totally. Well, then, Minx is a show for you. I'll tell you that one. <laughs> well, yes, so I just keep getting, like, every day, people are like, are you watching Minx? Penis across the board. Wow. 
everywhere. <laughs> and I watched the trailer today, and of course, it's about the first four women erotica magazine. I guess it must be loosely based on Playgirl. Yeah, it's like a fictional retelling of the origins of Playgirl magazine. But, you know, Ellen Rappaport, who runs the show and created it, when she came in and pitched it to us, first of all, we brought in a huge stack of Playgirl magazines that we then yeah. took around to all these pitch meetings. And everybody's so happy to see those magazines <laughs> yes. leaving behind. I'm so proud of this show. I'm really happy that people are digging it, too. Yeah, we're huge fans of Jake Johnson. He's the best. He is. He's got, like, another gear as well, which is, like, he could have been in all the 70s Scorsese movies. Well, he's like Downey Jr. They're so effortless, you just fall into their web that they're spinning because you're just like, oh, you're so cool. Like, you never see them working, you know? No, effortless, authentic. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, Paul, what a delight. Everyone should get hammered tonight on Artingstalls. <laughs> That's right. Can you buy it anywhere? Here's the best way to do it. Go to artingstallsgin.com and you can find out where to buy it. We're getting into a lot of stores all over the place. You know, we're going into BevMo's and all that. And if you're in the UK, go to the Whiskey Exchange or go to Amazon UK and you can get us through that. Oh, awesome. So I'm going to spell it for my fellow dyslexics. A-R-T-I-N-G-S-T-A-L-L-S-G-I-N-Gin.com. Thank you, sir. Yeah, what a pleasure. Oh my God, thank you. It's so good to see you guys. Yeah, may we be so lucky is to find ourselves at another dinner party. This time I'll try to come in at like 100% instead of 120. Don't you dare. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to keep your foot on the throttle, Shepard. I want 200, man. <laughs> I want 200. <laughs> That'll involve shirtless and in some really tight shorts. So That's all I ask. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Be well. Cheers. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. I'm having my very favorite thing. My new very favorite thing. I'm late to it. Pimento cheese. It's a southern delicacy. Why is that? Why wouldn't we in the north be all about pimento cheese? Spicy cheese. Spicy. But you didn't have it in Chicago, did no, you? No, but my grandparents were in Tennessee, and we had it whenever we'd go down to Tennessee. I just think that's an interesting, why is this dip regional to the South? I mean, I think the South puts a lot of mayonnaise and cream cheese and stuff in their dishes. Mm -hmm. So it's like a cream cheese with pimento. And chunks of seemingly cheddar cheese. Yeah. It's a dynamite dip. The internet has an answer. Oh. It's because it doesn't spoil easily at room temperature. Oh, and That's people in the South don't have refrigerators. Exactly. Guess so. <laughs> well, it's easy to pack in lunch boxes, particularly oh. for textile workers. Mm. But it was also fashionable as a sandwich in tea rooms. Oh mm. my gosh, I would love a little sandwich pimento. Yes, very yummy. Aaron and I, when we were in northern Michigan visiting our friend Sweet Jack, mm-hmm. we went to Meyer and we got about 600 pounds of salami and about three gallons of pimento dip. And we would make these little burritos, like so your piece of salami smeared with pimento rolled up. Unreal. Could make this doctor's <laughs> menu. Oh my gosh, you're Uh-oh. being abducted. Silver alert. Okay, what's that? There's a and silver medal winner somewhere? No, uh, missing endangered elderly. Oh, yeah. and they did it silver, like silver hair? Probably. Oh, wow. Everyone's gonna get it. No, not me. You don't have them on? God, no. You know what I said to myself? I lived 45 years without being alerted. I did just fine. That's how I told myself I don't need any of those alerts. Well, it's not for you. It's for the family of the elderly person missing (laughs) so that everyone can keep their eye out. All right. Well, you had to spin it. I'm thinking more of like 
there's a hurricane coming. There's a COVID oh, numbers see. are this. Uh, you know, just that's what I associate with those alarms. Got it. I get yeah. that. Tornado and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Also, it'd be great if it were refined enough because they do these like missing child alerts, right? Amber, yes. Amber, okay. And they'll tell you the car that the person was driving. Mm-hmm. And it's great info if you're on the highway. Yeah. If I'm sitting at home, my phone knows I'm at home, then I don't need that info because I'm not going to see that person. Well, you don't know. They could be stopping by for dinner. Oh. You could look out your window and be like, oh, my God, that's These impromptu Randy dinner guests. Randy. It's, the, there must be a kid in there. Is he in a Corolla 78J32? Oh, my gosh. It's, it's Randy. Randy and Sandy, his yeah. son. Yeah. You're upset I don't have those alerts. I can feel it. No, I, I don't care. Okay. I just wonder why because I, I don't think you did anything. To make that happen. No, I did. I go inside all my huh. settings and I turn all the alarms off. Oh, all, all the there you go. Public service alarms. I think I think it's a fun pop out. You like? Yeah, you like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's also nice to know how many people are missing all the time too. It makes me feel better. Makes me feel grateful that I'm not, not missing. missing. Yeah. yeah. That's another way to look at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little a gratitude alarm is what it really is. I had my phone off last night and I thought, I wonder if people think I'm missing. Oh. No one did. Paul Feig. What a fucking story about Ronald McDonald. I know. And I guess it's a ding, ding, ding because he directed Bridesmaids and we were just at a wedding. Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. That's a connection. I'll buy that. We were at a wedding, Bridesmaids. I'm from Michigan. He's from Michigan. That's right. You're you're like him. I, you're I'm a woman. Not at all he like wants him. to work with you because you're a woman. Oh, that would be great. Never work with me because I'm a man. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> He's so lovely. But you know what's great about him is once I found out he had been a performer, that made it so fun. I was like, oh, this guy was a comedian and an actor. This will be funner than your average director conversation simply because, you know, he's got some performer in him. Yeah. And boy, did he put on a show. I was laughing in stitches. Me too. The Ronald McDonald part was hilarious. And that does lead to a fact. Are there currently Ronald McDonald's? No. (gasps) Uh-oh. Yeah. In 2016, McDonald's officially retired Ronald. Because he didn't change with the times because no. of sexual impropriety? Well, and- after a series of, quote, creepy clown sightings oh. popped up across the United oh, States. Oh, oh, what? oh, this is real now. We transitioned into real. Yeah, it's real. In oh, no, I know, but I was making a joke about him being a Me too or something. Well, okay. As they escalated from random harmless sightings to seeing clowns carrying weapons, it seemed like a really bad time to be a clown. Oh, this goes back to our cat. I know, and he hates that. He hates that some people are giving clowns a bad name. Yeah, It, uh, the Joker, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of anti-clown heroes yeah. right now. Poor Ronald, he couldn't make it. I know, 2016, he had a long run, though. You know, let's not count him out, because if there's a resurgence or a renaissance, a clown renaissance, I can imagine them putting him back in the game. I would do it. No, you wouldn't. Yes, I would, because I did a clown class, and I was really good at it. I know, but I did a home ec class, and that doesn't mean that I would sew for a living. Were you really good at it? No. Okay, that's the difference. (laughs) Okay, but you would not be Ronald McDonald. 
Now it's a challenge. Oh, gosh. This is great. <laughs> this is my reverse peer pressure for you. You just heard that they get physically assaulted nonstop. Like, imagine you getting attacked by six kids. You think you could... Maybe they wouldn't do it because I'd be in a smaller suit, obviously, to fit my, my small body, and maybe they would go easy on me. You'd still have the enormous feet, as did Paul. Yeah, I could do that. What's interesting is I should do it because I'm looking for some action at all times. That's true. I kind of want to get attacked by six. Well, he said he had a body... You could be my bodyguard. Oh, perfect. Yeah. All right, now I'm in. <laughs> you could be Ronald McDonald. <laughs> You're going to have to get on board with my clown persona. It's different than Miniature Mouse. I will love it because I'm always encouraging you to show us your characters. So, okay. He says something early on about blowfish. Mm. And that was a ding, ding, ding for me because I had just heard this. I had never heard this. Did you know about blowfish as a delicacy? Yeah, and it's potentially Lethal. deadly. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Now, what makes it, he was hinting at, I don't know if he was joking or if it's the way you cut it. You cut this part, you don't cut that part. Well, yeah. Blowfish, known in Japan as fugu, is a highly prized delicacy both as sashimi or as an ingredient in soup. But the fish's liver, ovaries, and skin contain the poison tetrodotoxin. Ooh. And the parts must be removed by specifically trained and licensed preparers. So I guess if just like a little piece Bit of that skin. It, you get dead. Oh my god. Yeah, you have to sign like a disclaimer if you're going to Have you had it. it? No. I'm not I'm not <laughs> risking that. Yeah, it seems like of all the things to risk life and death for, that is way low. That to me that's like that's tied with Everest. I guess that's true, but at least it's like you're eating something yummy. Maybe. Maybe. You hope. Yeah. You know, people also eat like yak balls and I know it might be eyeballs and um you get numbness and paralysis 20 minutes to 3 hours after ingestion. The, these spread to the whole body in serious cases leading to death by respiratory failure. Oh, my God. It paralyzes you. Yeah. Oof. Ooh, boy. Yeah. It's intense. I mean, it better be the best thing you've ever put in your mouth. It might be. We'll never know. I wonder what the percentage of people that eat it die from it is. How about this? If the Emily Burger, oh. one in 1,000 people who ate it died of it. And it is the best hamburger in the world. We already know that. Yeah. Would you eat it? I want to say yeah, but no. I would not. Yeah, I we, would not. And, I, and I love that. I know. I mean, I would, I almost would say if you told me I could cut my pinky toe off and that would give me a magic power that anytime I wanted an Emily burger, I'd snap my fingers and I'd be holding it. I would probably do that. I would cut my pinky toe off really? for that superpower. Would you? No. What are you doing with your pinky toe? My feet are also a delicacy, ding, oh, ding, ding. Okay. Some people really enjoy my feet. Oh, right, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of you to keep. He he made me show him my feet and my shoes at the wedding. Oh, And wow. they weren't lotioned up, so I was a little embarrassed, but he said they still looked really nice. Okay. Do you ever look in his groin area to see if there's any no, activity? I don't need to do that. I, okay. You trust that he's fully aroused? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I believe in myself. Well, uh, for people who either don't know or don't remember, I one time came over to Eric's house and I walked in the backyard and there I found Miniature Mouse and Eric. Eric had a cheese grater <laughs> and he was grinding your feet, taking skin off your heels. Yeah, and, making them perfect. Right. It was quite a scene to walk into. Did you feel inappropriate? Like, I shouldn't be in here. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I was like, this is a sensual activity. Yep. I don't know how central she knows it is. 
Uh, but alas, there you guys were. <laughs> yeah, he loves feet. That's it, known. Yeah. And he likes mine. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I find it incredibly flattering because if somebody... Fetishizes feet. And then they like yours, yeah. that's a very high compliment. They're an expert. Exactly. Right. It's like if I tell you you got a cool car. Exactly. Right. Or you told me that I had a great handstand. You... Yeah. You've never told me that. I'm just saying if. That's true. Like sometimes I'll tell Lincoln like, oh, that cartwheel's really good. And I mean it. And I think she knows it's coming from a high source. Exactly. An expert. Yeah. You know, expert approval. Okay. How many floors can cats jump off a window? Oh, God. I hope you found the thing I was talking about. I think I did. Okay, great. It's it's a bad one. But okay, it needs to be how known. this cat survived a 32-story fall. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> 32? I wasn't even there. I have to read about this. Okay. 32 stories above the streets of New York City, a cat fell from a window and lived. After vets treated the cat's chipped tooth and collapsed lungs, the feline was sent home two days later. Cats fall a lot, and they've gotten really good at it. Drop a cat upside down, for example, and it will almost always land on its feet. That's because cats are extremely flexible. They can twist their bodies midair as they fall. But landing feet first isn't always the best strategy, like if you're falling from 32 stories up. To figure out how cats manage that perfect landing every time, a series of studies looked at over 100 cats falls from 2 to 32 stories up. Okay. Comes as no surprise that cats who fell from the second floor had fewer injuries than cats who fell from the sixth floor. But here's the fascinating part. Above the seventh story, the extent of the injuries largely stayed the same no matter how high the cats <laughs> fell. Oh, my God. Could you drop them out of an airplane? I don't know. Well, it comes down to acrobatics or lack thereof. Cats that fell from two to seven stories up mostly landed feet first. Above that, however, cats used a different technique. Instead of positioning their legs straight down as they fell, they splayed out like a parachuter and landed belly first instead. Oh, a flying squirrel technique. But this method isn't 100% foolproof. Chest trauma, like a collapsed lung or broken rib, is more common with this landing method. But the risk of breaking a leg is much less. So how do cats somehow subconsciously know how to land? It has to do with the physics phenomenon called terminal velocity. At first, the cat plummets faster and faster under gravity until she, this is a she cat, (laughs) until she's fallen the equivalent of five stories. At that point, she hits constant terminal velocity at 100 kilometers per hour. She's now in free fall where air friction counteracts her acceleration under gravity. At this point, she's no longer accelerating and more importantly, doesn't feel the pull from gravity. So here's what researchers think is happening. From two to seven stories up, cats don't have enough time to reach terminal velocity and prep for landing feet first. But once they hit terminal velocity, their instinct changes and they parachute their limbs. Oh, Hmm. wow. Okay, so in this particular study, in quotes, they really just looked at existing falls. Yeah, they didn't throw them out. The thing I heard was like they were conducting an experiment. Maybe that's apocryphal. Yeah, I hope that this is correct. Mm. And it's not at all the thing I said, which is that they relax. I can't believe they can fall out of a 32-story. And parachute their bodies? What's weird about terminal velocity, I guess it's not weird, but, you know, I, th- I want to say humans' terminal velocity is like 87 miles an hour, something like that. Okay. But, of course, these parachuters, they can dive and they can hit hundreds of miles. Or oh. not hundreds, but like 150 or something. But um, it seems bizarre that all you would hit is 87 miles an hour, doesn't it? I mean, I, I accept it as the law of physics, but it does seem like you keep picking up speed. It does seem weird because, like, you drive faster than that. Mm-hmm. You do. 118 miles per hour. Is human terminal velocity? For a, for a human skydiver, yeah. Mm. 
Okay. Okay. What happens at the end of fireworks? You said crescendo. Finale. Finale. Yeah. The grand finale. Sure. That's how I always hear it. Oh, oh here comes the grand finale. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Is that what you heard growing up? I mean, both. Okay. That's just like a fancy word to put in front of it. Yeah, it's a but a bland word to put in front of it. Yeah, you're it's right. A bland I mean, word. There can't be more than one finale, so it doesn't really need right. adjustment, I suppose. But but grand finale is always what we said. Oh my god, this must be the grand finale. You know, because all of a sudden more going off than should be. Sounds so childish. It is. Well, everyone's a kid when they watch fireworks. That's what's so great about yeah, it. Yeah, I do love fireworks. Remember, I would say in my top two ever watching fireworks is in Michigan. I know, July 4th. It was so lovely. Grand Haven, laying on the beach. Grand Haven? Yeah. Finale? The Grand Haven finale. We were laying on the beach. All right, there was a pier in sight, a very uh, cinematic pier. That's where they were launching the firecrackers from. And boy, we got a grand Haven finale. It was really, really fun. <laughs> that was mystical and enchanted. It was enchanted. It was incredibly enchanted. It was a, there was a little bit of mist in the air that night. So it was when the the rockets red flared, <laughs> the, it, and the bombs bursted in air. It lit up a lot of the water molecules in the air. Do you remember? It was like getting refracted by a lot of moisture in the air over Lake Michigan. Oh, I think that's what made it so enchanting. I don't remember that part. I just remember the, en the enchantment. En the enchantness. Okay. You know what's interesting? We talked about train spotting having like a really intense part about poop, like toilet. Well, interestingly, train spotting does have that, but we were talking about Slumdog Millionaire. We were. We started also talking about Slumdog Millionaire. So oh. those were both in the same conversation, but they're both Danny, Danny Boyle. Boyle. Yeah, he, he likes pooty. Oh, my God. We'd get along so well. We sure would. Wow. Hottest summer on record in Los Angeles. Because he said when he was working at um, the theme Universal. park that it was the hottest summer on record. So the hottest summer, the highest temperature recorded among all Los Angeles County weather stations was 120 degrees Fahrenheit in Woodland Hills on September 6th. 2020. Uh-oh. SpaghettiOs. So also this was after he worked it. Yeah. So maybe up he, until then it was the hottest summer. Yeah, he didn't work there in 2020. Well, he's a very successful director. I don't know. I, well, maybe he wanted to get back to his roots. Maybe he's trying to get the pension. Like maybe that's a union job, and if he does X amount of days a year, he keeps his stand, good standing with the union. <laughs> kind of like uh, us, actually, actors. You got to act enough to keep your insurance. I was okay. I was actually gonna say, although may, is it residuals that does it? What about people who take like four years off? What are they doing with their insurance? I know. And by the way, you know, I don't really want to act again. And it's occurred to me, I'm gonna have to act some just to keep my insurance. But I you'll keep my have insurance. residuals, and I bet yours will be enough to cover. It's like fifteen thousand. I don't think the residuals count. Do yeah, they? they do. They do. Yeah. I think you can afford insurance too. Well, I that's can't. the other. That's the thing. I wonder, like, oh, do they just move to a different insurance? Obviously, they can afford it, but it is a hassle and a pain to go back and forth. So then I wonder. Not only is it a hassle and a pain back and forth, but because I'm on the same policy I've always been on, I think it's a manageable thing. If I went to another insurer, brand new, and they looked at my injury pass thing, it would be pretty astronomical. I have to imagine. Oh. Yeah, I mean, also SAG insurance is, cheap. I mean, it's so much cheaper than others. It's crazy. Right. I've been on and off. Oh, because yeah. you, well, you get to pay and keep your policy when you're 
when they're not paying? Is that how you know that? I haven't done it in a, I haven't luckily had to do it in a long time, except I lost my insurance. I remember. Yeah, I just didn't get it mm -hmm. until the new year. Um, you hadn't filed something? I didn't pay. You didn't pay your dues, that's what it was. Okay. No, I didn't pay my insurance. Oh, okay, that's what it was. <laughs> Because <laughs> right, you paid quarterly, oh. and I had paid for two quarters, mm. and then I forgot. Whoopsies. I know. That was bad. The best insurance, just for the record, is DGA. Oh. Like all these unions, right? There's a hierarchy. Mm. Because there's fewer writers than there are actors. Yeah. And then there's even fewer DGA members. And what the DGA you buy in for is a lot more expensive. And then what oh. the studio has to pay for your our health and pension thing is higher. Oh. All that to say, when I was directing enough to have DGA insurance, that was like, what, you want cosmetic teeth surgery? Go crazy. Like wow. it, when I saw the list of everything, it covered everything. I could have wow. gone to treatment for six months. Oh my I could have got my teeth redone, I think. If it's hard enough to get SAG, like it's hard enough to keep your SAG insurance by yes. acting, how... What What's the requirement? Like you have to direct so many days out of the year? I always wonder that. We should have an expert on in um, union insurance. I don't like the DGA. <laughs> you know, Tarantino famously quit it. Oh, really? Yeah, he wanted to co-direct with Rodriguez. They wouldn't let, give him a co-director credit, so he quit. Mm. It's also a great union. I want to say that. It's yeah. a great union, and it really takes care of... Especially episodic TV directors, they get treated really well because of that great, great union. It's a great union. But they're entitled. Oh. Like I had to beg, I had to go in there and make a case so that I could get a co-directing credit with my friend Dave. Mm. And that was just, I didn't like the vibe of that. Anyways, they granted it, so I shouldn't be butthurt over it. Here was the big thing. When I joined, they're like, uh, you know, I have an address, right, that all my mail, my bills goes to. And we don't want that address. We want your home address. Oh. Like, you don't need my home address. Yes, we do. Like, it was a battle. It could have just been one guy. It could have been. But I've had many interactions with them. They just really, it's in my opinion, they are not. H&R Block. Well, let's keep them out of it. But, you know. <laughs> it's almost tax time, so. Yeah. I, you know what it is? It's like, it's the way I used to feel when I go to a fancy restaurant and I thought the waiter thought I was a piece of shit and didn't belong there. It, it has that vibe. I don't okay. know if I'll, have, I'll get it this year. I don't know. We just don't know. We'll see. TBD. Um, how many episodes of Nurse Jackie did Paul direct? Ten. Mm, nice even Out number. of 12. That season. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, that's all for Paul. That's all for Paul. Okay. That's all, Paul. Well, look. <laughs> Get off the bus, Gus. Don't need a plan, Stan. Oh. What's that? Uh, Gar Ar Garfunkel and Paul Simon. Garfield? <laughs> yes, it's Garfield. It's one of his songs. You don't know Garfield's songs? Mm -hmm. They're mainly yeah. about lasagna, but... Uh, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. Art, what the fuck was it? <laughs> Garfunkel and Simon? What's going on here? Um, Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. There we go. Um, do you want to hear my favorite song of theirs? Yeah. Okay. How come to look for America Laughing on the bus Playing games with the faces she said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy. I said, be careful, his bow tie is really a camera. Did you make that up? <laughs> oh, no, that's how playful and silly the song is. 
It took us four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. How come to look for America? Wow. You like it? I mean. Yeah, I've never heard it. It's a really good Is song. Is it a deep cut? No, I think okay. it was popular. I probably just stopped. Simon and Garfunkel and Simon is very old. Oh, I know. Yeah. Uh, my favorite is Bridge Over Troubled Water. Oh, yeah. Very classic. I love you that song. You hit me with that one? I was no. Like, oh, okay. That one's okay. That one's too soft for me, Bridge Over Trouble. It's too crying. Is it yeah, it's, it's sad. I love it. Hey. Hey, how about this one, though, that they sang? <laughs> That's more upbeat. Hello, lampposts, what you knowin'? I come to watch your flowers growin' Just kicking around the cobblestones Looking around and feeling groovy. Is that the same one as the one you were no. singing? Oh, feeling you know groovy. a lot of them. Feeling groovy is a good Art, uh, art Garfunkel and <laughs> Pete Simon tune. Remember when I said, wow, I cannot believe that you know Dweezil and oh, Moon. You I, I was so flattered by that. But I'm just like, this is why. Because this I'm so is old. No, oh. but you can't remember Simon and Garfunkel, but you can remember Moon it's and Dweezil. Burn. I thought it's you were bringing not a back. Burn. No, no, it's good. It's good. It's right. <laughs> that was the point you were making. This is right. You're confirming your point with data. Yeah, I'm I, just I saying. I'm, I'm saying the reason I was so a, a flutter. Yeah. When you knew all that was because this is what I'm used to. Of course. This is your status quo. My excuse or explanation is Garfunkel. You throw Garfunkel in the middle of anything, and I it's going to get garbled. No, you said the reason that you do know those is because they're off the wall. Right, Shitstick Smith. Exactly. Right, if Adam Smith had named his son Shitstick, I'd right. know it. But Gar so you'd think Garfunkel might be in there cuz it's it's off the wall. Well, that's true. It's the Paul and the Simon and the Art. <laughs> I don't know where they go. And it turns out the Art and the Paul don't even go there. They don't. No. No. <laughs> no, they don't. Okay, no. All right. Uh, just one more thing about those guys. Okay. Great Mike Nichols movie that Art Garfunkel starred in <laughs> at the Height of Garfunkel and Simon. Art Garfunkel was in a Mike Nichols movie, and it was incredible. And he was incredible. What is his real name? Art Garfunkel. It's not Art, is it? Art Garfunkel. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is? Mm -hmm. What's the movie, the Mike Nichols, Art Garfunkel movie? Carnal Knowledge. Carnal Knowledge. Oh. It's great. Oh. You know Mike Nichols? Do you know he's? Uh, yeah. Yes. What yeah. a what a Dead. Lost him to... Is he? Not really to... Mike Nichols, yeah. Oh, he lost him? Yeah, 2014. Oh, yeah. I'm late on that. I'm late on that. Oh, so he must have been older when he directed... Closer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And remember you played Natalie Portman? Mm -hmm. I just remembered that. <laughs> in my college. Oh, my God. In college. Yeah, I Yeah, did. you took the harlotin role. I did. Role. And I wore um, um a uh, skimpy. Oh, Lingerie. Oh, my God. Lingerie? Yeah, because I had to strip. Oh, my God. And the classmates watch this? Yeah, and one of my classmates saw my vagina. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. No, he didn't. Oh. Well, I was wearing a underwear, but, I mean, his a face was up close. I was wearing thunderwear. <laughs> Why don't you come out with a celebrity thong <laughs> underwear called thunderwear? So powerful. <laughs> oh my god all right all I right love you. love you to bye. death bye